You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by TNT's new limited series, The Alienist. When a series of gruesome murders grips New York in 1896, Dr. Laszlo Chrysler and his team must investigate, analyze, and capture the killer. The Alienist, premiering January 22, 2018, on TNT. The Bowery Boys, episode 251, McGurk's Suicide Hall. The Bowery's most notorious dive. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're flipping through the dusty old newspapers back to the 1890s. But we're not going to the gay 90s or the the gilded age of tycoons and industrialists, but rather to a darker and seedier side of New York in the 1890s, to a world of, of vice and violence that existed inside the dive bars and dance halls of the Bowery. Our destination is the gruesomely named McGurk's Suicide Hall. Tom, let me read you a clip from the New York Herald from March 1899. McGurk's is the resort of the better dead, as in the better off dead. Suicide Hall, the Bowery calls it now, for the reason that occasionally a young girl comes out from the ill-lighted and gloomy dance hall reeling under the effects of self-administered poison. Often she takes her carbolic acid on the sidewalk in front of the place. In any event, those who seek to end mortal ills at McGurk's are lugged to the corner of Bowery and First Street, there to await the coming of the ambulance. Under the shadow of the elevated road, three young girls, world-weary and not yet out of their teens, were taken last week to await the coming of the vehicle with a surgeon in charge. In one case, a dead wagon would have answered as well. The other two victims are lying in Bellevue Hospital, hovering between life and death. McGurk Suicide Hall, the subject of today's show, was not just any old dive bar. It was literally the end of the road in 1899 for six women and another seven who attempted to end their lives here. We're going to introduce you to all sorts of nasty characters in disreputable places. And the scene where our story will be taking place today is 
along two or three blocks of the Bowery, an area which today is rather trendy and even cool within the shadow of a Whole Foods. So join us as we go undercover to visit the notorious McGurk's Suicide Hall. Tommy, it's been a while since the Bowery Boys have actually gone to the Bowery. Mm. I'm sure it's missed us. <laughs> I hope so. We're going to be spending some time in the 1880s and 1890s in some very seedy places. But to understand how it got this way, can we back up a little bit and review the history of the Bowery before it got so disreputable? Because the show today is actually taking place um, inside and outside, unfortunately, 295 Bowery, which is located on the east side of the street between Houston and First Street. But, of course, we're also, like you mentioned, talking about the Bowery in general, which is a street that is roughly parallel to Broadway, uh, just east of it, and stretches about one mile from Chatham Square in today's Chinatown up to Cooper Square, just south of Astor Place. Now, today, of course, the Bowery boasts, you know, a wild mix of shops, and it's amazing to walk that stretch mm -hmm. just a mile. You can do it in about 20 minutes. You'll pass, you know, Chinese retail shops and restaurants and bakeries to a small lighting district mm -hmm. um, and followed by restaurant supply stores, which, you know, a few of which still remain. And then gentrification really kicks in, and it's all about bars and upscale restaurants and brasseries, if you will. Very chic and fancy hotels. Some of which even bear the name of the street itself. Yes, but we should also mention that the Bowery is also the name of a neighborhood that is roughly defined by, let's just say, a couple blocks on either side of the Bowery. So let's go back to the very beginning. Okay. Back to when the Bowery meant Farm Road, because it actually went through farms. Here we go. Can you give me the Dutch name, Greg? <laughs> the Dutch word? I think we've said it 40 different times, 40 different ways on this show. So, Bauri. <laughs> There's a J at the end. Don't be afraid of the J. But before that, even, it was a Lenape Native American footpath. In fact, it's the oldest road in the city. During the Dutch period, the lane ran up to Peter Stuyvesant's farms uh, that were located in today's East Village. So the fact that it was called the Farm Road referred to his farm and the other farms. The Delanceys had mm -hmm. their farm. Many people had farms along this farm road. And then by the British period of British occupation of New York, they called it something a little bit fancier, Bowery Lane. And during the British period, there were already some businesses that had established themselves along the Bowery, most famously being the Bull's Head Tavern, which opened in 1750 and was the site of Washington's stop uh, when he was heading back in to recapture the city from the British at the end of the Revolution in 1783. And that was located on the Bowery near the entrance of today's Manhattan Bridge. But of course, in the 1800s, the city would continue to move north and the Bowery would become, for a brief period in the 1820s and 30s, a very fashionable residential area. Going back to the story of the Bull's Head Tavern, developers bought the tavern, ripped it down, and in its place built a new theater to compete with the Park Theater that was like, you know, the main theater down by City Hall. 
they built a competing theater, which opened here in 1826, called the New York Theater. It would burn down and quickly be rebuilt and renamed the Bowery, or the Grand Bowery Theater. It was the largest and most lavishly decorated theater in the nation. It sat more than 3,500 people, and it would have a spectacular run of, among other things, burning down every couple of years and being rebuilt. So how did this respectable neighborhood with fine theaters, Mm -hmm. how did it deteriorate into this notorious district of saloons and brothels. Well, it didn't just happen overnight. And some of the causes of this change of events for the Bowery are kind of obvious. Like, for example, the fact that the city kept growing. Those who could keep moving farther north and away from the business center downtown kept going. You know, there were new fashionable quarters, as we've talked about in many recent shows, And after the Civil War, the Bowery was no longer really fashionable. Broadway was where you did your shopping, and Fifth Avenue, if you could, is where you did your living. So as a result, the Bowery got taken over by arriving immigrant communities, then starting in the 1830s, but then progressing throughout the rest of the century. Right, and living in neighborhoods that were found really around the Bowery. Mm -hmm. And some of these neighborhoods were pretty dangerous, including the most famous of them all, the Five Points, which was located just west of the Bowery's southern tip. And these dangerous residential quarters also became breeding grounds for street gangs, which formed mostly along ethnic lines or as a response uh, to other ethnicities in general. You know, there there were gangs like the Bowery Boys and the Dead Rabbits and many, many others. Mm-hmm. So with these changes to the neighborhood, what happened to some of these more austere structures like this Bowery Theater, for instance? Well, almost immediately after it opened or was rebuilt after burning down, the Bowery Theater went more middle-brow and then low-brow. You know, it had a distinctly populist and pro-American, anti-European flair to it. That would change later in the 19th century as they started doing works to appeal to the groups of immigrants themselves. As the theater would stage Irish works and then German works um, after changing its name to the Thalia Theater. There were also, of course, minstrel theaters. There were curiosity museums. From the Encyclopedia of New York City, quote, Its specialty became nickel museums featuring mermaids, snakes, sword swallowers, lions, dwarfs, and women in various states of undress. So things are clearly changing. So these dime museums, things we might call freak shows, things in the Barnum American Museum mold are now opening along here with theaters showing quote-unquote popular entertainments. For a nickel. Right. And then something very significant happens to the street then in the 1870s. In 1878, the elevated railroad opened along the Bowery, which, you know, made it easier to access on one hand. It ran along the Bowery and hooked into Third Avenue at the top of Bowery, and so it was called the Third Avenue Elevated Railroad. But it also created, you know, a lot of shadows through soot and all kinds of sparks down on people, making the neighborhood even less desirable than it had already become. Because who would want to go, you know, what kind of respectable shopper would want to go out to stores uh, where they could have a, you know, be rained on by soot from above? So this was making a deteriorating situation that much worse which also attracted all kinds of other people who would be labeled undesirables uh, by the city and by enforcement. 
these would of course be sailors on leave, you know, men, swarms of men coming up from the waterfront. Yeah, the thing to keep in mind is Lower Bowery in particular is actually quite close to this thriving waterfront, a waterfront in the late 19th century, which has really begun to age so mm. and develop a poor reputation as well. A port reputation? A poor port reputation. But bars by the dozens would spring up along the Bowery to satiate the needs of these men. This is from the book Low Life by Luke Sante. The average saloon had a sawdust-covered floor, a pot-bellied stove, a wall covered with mirrors, nudes, framed newspaper clippings, chromos of boxers and horses. In some places, a stein of beer was drawn and dumped in front of you the minute you sat down. Beer was the blood. Men could play cards or pool, they could hold union or political meetings in the back room, or argue politics and labor, or horses or baseball in the front. They could trust the bartender, who would be their confessor, business advisor, political mentor, gossip monger. In the 1890s, the Bowery itself claimed over half the saloons and pawn shops south of 14th Street. And it wasn't just saloons or groggeries either. It was also dance halls, which was a new form of nightlife entertainment that sprouted up in New York in the 1860s around the Civil War, which were larger venues that usually featured dancing girls, musical entertainment, uh, the precursor of the New York nightclub today. And with all the dancing girls, I mean, we're also then like veering off and into another world, another feature of the Bowery, which, of course, were the brothels. Sometimes there wasn't much distinction between the saloons, the dancing halls and the brothels or even really the theaters. For by this point, by the end of the 19th century, even the Bowery Theater and others permitted prostitutes to really do their thing in the upper balconies. Well, there's so much to see and do now here underneath the elevated Bowery Railroad. Where were people staying? Were there boarding houses, hotels, flop houses? All of these things. They were all options, Greg. Many of them were very low rent and divey. Lots of cheap uh, lodgings had been built after the Civil War to house returning soldiers. So by the end of the 19th century, you know, there were many, many flop houses and cheap hotels that were catering to sailors and other transient types. And there were even more hotels than you'd expect along the Bowery because of the passage in 1896 of what was called the Rains Law, which prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sundays except in hotels and hotels with more than 10 rooms uh, that also served food. So, of course, Saloon keepers, wishing to be open on Sunday, found this to be an easy loophole to jump through. So saloons quickly opened up rooms upstairs, you know, uh, for lodgers ostensibly, and at least pretended in some capacity to serve food. So unsurprisingly, this boom in bedroom construction above these dive bars mm -hmm. uh, and saloons led to another spike in prostitution. So... Into this great cesspool of vice, which you've just described, comes a gentleman who would only bring greater scandal. He would perfect the notoriety of the Bowery here. His name was John McGurk. To quote a wonderful old 1931 history of the Bowery called Old Bowery Chronicle of a Street by Alvin Fay Harlow, the book describes him as, quote, having the most evil fame of any of the dive keepers, 
of the Bowery. That's quite an accomplishment for, for yeah for the Bowery, a right? Man of the Bowery. <laughs> yeah. Well, McGurk was an Irish immigrant from the County Tyrone who first moved to Boston and then moved to New York sometime in the early 1880s. Now, according to the book I just referred to, in 1883, he, quote, opened a saloon with feminine attractions at Elizabeth and Houston Street. Feminine attractions. I'm assuming that that doesn't mean girly drinks. Cosmopolitans. (laughs) Cosmopolitans. <laughs> no, there were no apple teenies, I don't think, at his Elizabeth and Houston location. Soon thereafter, sometime in 1883 or 1884, he opened another establishment at 267 Bowery. That is between Houston and Stanton on the east side. Kind of where the, the wine store, Bowery and Vine, is right there okay. on next to the Whole Foods. <laughs> next to Whole Foods and the yeah. YMCA. Yeah. This place was called The Mug. Okay. Now, no surprise. Like the mug shot? Well, like the drinking mug. Oh. No surprise at The Mug, many unsuspecting customers were actually mugged. And, and the word mugged, I looked this up, actually, is a, is a Scandinavian word for a, a drinking vessel with a face on it. Anyway, that's where the word oh, mug Oh, like your from. mug. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so but he calls it the mug. He calls it the mug, and and occasionally the clientele would get mugged, but by a surprising perpetrator, the waiters themselves. Oh. Identifying hapless rubes, sailors who had come in uh, with lots of money, wasteful spending, the waiters at the mug would put knockout drops in the drinks. So then when the customers would pass out at the table or on the floor or whatever, the waiters would help them to the door, relieving them of their possessions and currencies along the way, and then would just throw them out. The waiters were actually drugging the clientele. Yes. And then pickpocketing them. Mm-hmm. It was a whole song and dance. It was a whole song and dance at the mug. Well, that sounds like a rather sordid theme bar. <laughs> yes. How in the world would a place like that stay in business? Well, McGurk had a certain way of handling his establishments, which I'll explain in a bit. Although the mug would get shut down periodically by the police, McGurk, though, would be successful enough to open another place at 253 Bowery. That's just a couple steps north of the new museum today. Now, given the fact that we mentioned earlier that the Bowery's frequented by sailors and shipmen. Right, coming up from the port. You know, actually, they would sometimes call these places schooner houses, and McGurk would even print handbills that would be distributed in far-off cities. So when the sailors would come to New York, they would search for his establishments. Oh, because they had heard that there were knockout drinks. (laughs) The drinks really packed a punch. (laughs) So this place, a 253 Bowery, this new place, he went one further in making this connection, and he named that new bar Sailor's Snug Harbor, which was... Sailor's Snug Harbor? Yes. That's kind of in poor taste, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, the Sailor's Snug Harbor is an actual elder sailor's home in Staten Island, one of New York's great architectural marvels. Now, at some point during his operation of these nightclubs, he made an association with a very violent, surly individual named Jack McManus. Although everyone called him Edomot McManus. Edomot McManus. Edomot McManus was his nickname. He was known for his signature costume of a scarlet shirt and spectacles. 
Okay. As he was described in The New Yorker uh, later in 1929, quote, Edom Up was the king of the bouncers in the day before the Bowery turned respectable. Edom Up was beautiful in action. He had a patent on certain little tricks. For instance, he kept a few broken highball glasses beneath the bar. When a pet enemy came at him fast and sudden, McManus would calmly reach for the jagged glass and grind it into the attacker's face. Ugh, what a lousy creature. What was his official role? You said he was the bouncer? Well, many today consider him to be the very first bouncer in New York City history, perhaps ever. So his job was to be a bouncer at these bars. Basically, he was the tough. He was the strong arm of these places. And a key to McGurk's success. The enforcer. So it's the mid-1890s, and McGurk is operating a handful of dive bars yes. that, that are fairly well-known. Yes. He actually made a name for himself as a lowly impresario of sorts. His name would not only be of value to revelers who are out looking for a good time, and remember he has these handbills all over the place right. with his name on them, but of course he would slowly become rather loathed by city reformers, which he'll get to later. Now, in 1895, his name was actually big enough that he opened a dance hall in his own name, simply known as McGurk's, at 295 Bowery, our destination for this show. Now, that building was constructed in 1867, was a hotel for returning soldiers from the Civil War, but... It was no match for the decrepitude of the neighborhood and soon joined the big lineup of dance halls that were operating up and down the Bowery. Okay, well, you just said twice that this is a dance hall. A place of loud, grand, body entertainment. The building was four stories with a very large back room for entertainment. Interestingly, a separate entrance, as they did in the day, a separate entrance for women. Oh, how refined. By 1898, along one wall was a gigantic painted mural featuring McGurk reaching to shake the hand of Admiral George Dewey, <laughs> which is a very strange image considering what you're about to hear in this story. The dance hall was filled with dancing girls doing the can-can in extravagant outfits. There were singing waiters and a live band every single night. Well, this kind of sounds like fun, yeah, doesn't I mean, Is that yeah. bad to say? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, at least based upon that, it sounds like a gay old time in the gay 90s. However, there are other descriptions that make it seem less than desirable. From Mr. Harlow's book that I mentioned earlier, quote, What were its attractions? It is hard to discover. For it is described as a dingy place with heavy battered tables and thick glasses, clouded with rough usage and poor cleansing, yet it is crowded nightly. So his biggest complaint is that the glasses were kind of cloudy? I mean, we well, we still go and get an occasional <laughs> drink from a cloudy glass well, bar. Look, I mean, there are so many places, Tom, that you and I have gone in our lifetimes that would be described as cesspools, <laughs> right? Oh. So... You know, this is where the fun was at. This right. is where the fun people were at, and the drinks, and the music, and the can-can girls. So these depictions in later work were kind of focusing 
on heavy amoral haze. Right. Later accounts, in this case, a book from 1931, mm-hmm. uh, need to be viewed from the, you know, from the viewpoint through a filter of that age. Yes, from a lot of these perspectives, most of the Bowery was a place you took your life and your finances into your own hands. Not that they didn't have a point. For instance, the head waiter was named Shortchange Charlie. Oh, he was a I see f- where this is going. <laughs> he was a former circus employee who earned his nickname by stiffing customers their proper change. I mean, obviously, with, with such regularity that he received this nickname. He was so notorious for doing this that he was famously exposed by a traveling magician who was in town, a man <laughs> named the Amazing Harry Keller who was there at McGurk's with his friends after a performance. It took a magician to expose (laughs) shortchange Charlie. But there was real crime taking place here at McGurk's. How did he even stay open? Well, he had a certain method, McGurk, to his madness. McGurk always insisted that his places were clean and crime-free. You can actually read a few reports from police officers who say things like, have you ever heard of anyone being arrested at McGurk's? In truth, it was the fact that McGurk just preferred thieves be good at their job. If pickpockets were caught stealing inside, he would throw them outside and then have them banned from McGurk's forever. So... He only attracted the most professional pickpockets and thieves, if you will. Right, the ones who wouldn't get caught. He was strangely liked, actually. Um, From the New York Sun in 1899, back when things were starting to go a little south, quote, McGurk is not without his admirers. He is known along the Bowery as a very foxy guy. Almost anyone who knows him will tell you that McGurk is on the level and that if anyone gets touched in his place, he is sure to get his money back if he makes a holler. Huh. So he just, he liked to handle his problems himself. If you want to think of this in an early organized crime sort of fa- sort of way. Well, well, we'll get to this in a minute, but he was also contributing heavily to the local police force oh, and yeah, to uh-huh. Tammany Hall. There are lots of payoffs going on, too. So that may have also had something to do with the lack of arrests. Mm-hmm. Now, things started to get very, very dark at McGurk's as the new century approached. Now, you had mentioned the Reigns Law. Which permitted hotels or any bar with rooms upstairs to serve alcohol on Sunday. Yes. Well, McGurk's was indeed Reigns Law compliant. That is so not surprising. Well, so imagine, here's this bar that we've just described with Mm -hmm. all of these rooms for let up above it. Here in front of the elevated train on one of the more disreputable corners of New York City. Given that location and these available rooms, no surprise they were frequented by local street prostitutes. Competing for business here under the elevated, and these women had no association to the many dozens of brothels that were in the neighborhood, so this was considered the the lowest rung of work. We even mentioned this in our Times Square in the 1970s podcast. It's the same dire circumstances that many of these women faced. Women that were trapped in this profession at a most desperate level. So McGurk's was a place that tolerated prostitution. Now, nobody really knows when they truly began. It's difficult to trace the first. But these rooms soon took on a disturbing reputation. as a place for distressed people to end their lives. Now, I have seen a wide variety of numbers. I think we 
we we solidly agree on at least 13 women who attempted to end their lives at McGurk's. Other sources say up to 50 people attempted to end their lives at or around McGurk's. The newspapers first reported on this in March 2nd, when a woman named Bess Levery climbed to the top floor and there killed herself. Three days later, another woman named Florence Levine attempted to end her life there. She was taken to Bellevue Hospital and would survive. And yet another girl following her would also attempt to end her life here. She was a 16-year-old named Emma Hartig. A week after the death of Miss Levery, the New York Sun exposed that several young women and girls had ended their lives here on the Bowery between 1st and 2nd Street, and that those that were found on the street probably originated from inside one of the rooms at McGurk's dance hall. By March 10th, the dance hall had become very infamous. How exactly were these women committing suicide? Most of them were using carbolic acid, or phenol, used in the late 19th century as an antiseptic. In the preceding decades, it had become popularized by the English scientist Joseph Lister as something that was used during surgeries to, to, to sanitize conditions. Joseph Lister? That, that name sounds familiar. You may be familiar with a liquid that is named for him, Listerine. So throughout this year, 1899, these deaths kept occurring. And the city seemed to be unable to shut the dance hall down. There was one publicized tragedy here that happened in the late summer involving two women, one named Blonde Madge Davenport and the other one nicknamed Big Mame. They both came here to die together. However, Madge drank the carbolic acid and then died. Mame, however, only managed to spill the acid on her face, leaving herself horribly scarred. By this point, any time that there was a suicide that took place here on the Bowery or even here in the Lower East Side, they would be attributed in some way to McGurk. And all these were happening around the same time in 1899. Mm -hmm. What was McGurk's response? What role did he even play in any of this? Well, he was publicly, at least, very shaken by these deaths. He, was, he wept openly in front of the press for these dead women. At one point, he says, quote, Most of the women who come into my place have been on the downgrade too long to think of reforming. I never pushed a girl downhill, nor did I ever refuse a helping hand to one who wanted to climb. So he seems kind of sympathetic here. Uh, contrite, perhaps. But in actuality, he is a scoundrel. He actually used the attention that was brought by the press to pack the bar full of drinkers and partiers every single night. And he soon began referring to the place as McGurk's Suicide Hall, officially embracing that horrible nickname. At night... You would walk underneath that elevated train rattling above you with the soot falling down upon you at night. And you might walk by McGurk's and there were barkers in front of the dance hall, beckoning sailors and others to come inside, crying out, quote, step right inside. 
this is the celebrated McGurk's Suicide Hall. There's been more suicides in this hall than any hall in the world. Made famous by the newspapers. Step inside. It's free. He even had metal medallions printed up with McGurk's face. Awarded to revelers as medals of bravery for anyone who managed to work up the courage to spend an evening here. But how in the world was he able to continue operating this bar uh, while it was so well publicized right. that these things were taking place here? Well, I've been focusing on the events that, that are taking place here at the bar. But what's going on in the city are some major reforms and powerful reformers that would work to crack down on places as awful as McGurk's Suicide Hall. We'll get to the city's reform efforts and whatever happened to John McGurk after this. Well, we hope that you're enjoying the story of McGurk's Suicide Hall taking place here in the seedy underbelly of New York City in the 1890s which also happens to be the setting of TNT's new limited series, The Alienist. Here's a sneak peek into The Alienist. You think I'm crazy? A monster unleashed. My God. A man obsessed. He's watching us. A city in fear. <laughs> Mondays on TNT, the hunt for pure evil begins. Cold-blooded killers walk among us. Based on the best-selling novel, Daniel Bruhl, Luke Evans, and Dakota Fanny. What compels a man to do evil? The Alienist, new limited series, Mondays at 9, 8 central on TNT. Wow, that sounds like such an amazing show, and Greg is so excited right now. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the book by Caleb Carr, so I cannot wait to dive into this show. Well, we'll be tuning in on January 22nd. And now, back to the show. So obviously a, a nasty lowdown bar like McGurk's wouldn't be able to operate forever because, as you mentioned, newspapers, they were starting to cover the bar, cracking down on a way on the bar, even when the police or politicians were unwilling to take action. And they were unwilling to take action because McGurk himself was a pretty generous contributor to police and Tammany causes. Yeah, he was actually quite powerful and rubbed shoulders with many Democratic politicians in New York. So now I, I'd just like to pull back for a second to take account of something bigger that was happening because reform was in the air. And New Yorkers, and really the whole nation... We're taking notice of the squalid conditions in certain New York neighborhoods, including the Bowery. Conditions being a general term for all kinds of things that uh, needed attention. Not just bars, but also housing, that kind of thing. Exactly. Housing like, you know, because of the work of Jacob Reese in the late 1880s. He had really shown a flashlight or a flash bulb on the terrible living conditions in the tenements of the Lower East Side. 
These photographs uh, were published in 1888, first in The Sun and then other publications, and would come out in a book in 1890, How the Other Half Lives. And this would help lead the way to reforms in the building code, for example. So meanwhile, reform also came from religious organizations. In 1892, on February 14th, 1892, there was a sermon delivered by a minister named Charles Parkhurst of the Madison Square Presbyterian Church. In his sermon, he accused Tammany Hall and the mayor, the comically named Hugh Grant, of creating, really, and protecting all the vice that was happening here in the Bowery and in the Tenderloin and other red light districts. And he couldn't believe, as he delivered in his, in his sermon, Reverend Parkhurst could not believe that, you know, even though this was being covered in the press, the city's police department wasn't doing anything serious to crack down on all of the graft. How did Parkhurst's words uh, go over with the city here? Well, they launched a grand jury investigation. They brought him in and said, okay, show us your proof. He didn't have any proof at that time, so the whole thing was sort of dismissed. But he turned around, instead of just giving up, he turned around and launched his own investigation, hiring his own detectives, and he toured, you know, the most dangerous and seediest places in town. So he got some firsthand accounts of how bad Both things hands. had gotten. <laughs> And delivered another sermon on March 13th, a month later, armed with the findings of his CD tour de force, um, which was here meticulously documented. And really, Greg, I think that this deserves its own podcast. Oh, sure. And t to us today, it seems so prevalent, this, uh, this mass vice and corruption that was going on in places like the Tenderloin and here on the Bowery. But it seems like Parkhurst's revelations really shocked the city. Because he documented what was happening in these bars and the fact that there were police officers who were also in the bars drinking with the patrons as all kinds of illegal activities were going on around them. And because of this, two years later, in 1894, the New York State Legislature launched a committee to investigate this, led by Clarence Lexow. It would be called the Lexow Committee. To study the link between Tammany Hall the underworld and the police. And this was big news. A whole nation was following the, the committee work, which published a 6,000-page finding in 1895 that showed vast corruption in the city, including and especially in the police department, where people were having to pay to get into the police department to become officers because the corruption was so lucrative for them and pay even more to advance in their career and basically pay for their own promotions because you only would get more money in kickbacks as you worked your way up the ladder. A weird perverse pyramid scheme of sorts. At, in the police department. So all of that brought about then, unsurprisingly, political change in the city um, as a new anti-Tammany administration came in. William Strong, elected mayor in 1894 as a big reformer. And this is, so this is all happening at the same time as McGurk, you know, operating various bars. Mm -hmm. In the early days of McGurk's dance hall. So this new mayor, William Strong, one of his first actions was to bring in uh, a new police commissioner who was also a big reformer, Theodore Roosevelt. New York-born. At this point, he was working in D.C. in a government job. So Strong brought him back up to New York to serve as police commissioner, as a Republican, 
and he would serve uh, in that capacity until 1897. While there, he would just clean house uh, and try to try to reestablish order and, and integrity to the department. So he was very familiar with what was going on in the Bowery and certainly knew the name of John McGurk. And meanwhile, Roosevelt's working out of police headquarters, which was just, you know, two minutes away at 300 Mulberry Street. It's so close to where McGurk's suicide hall is that it's almost scandalous. It's yeah, it's like a two or three minute walk between police headquarters where Theodore Roosevelt went to work and the doorway of McGurk's. And Roosevelt, you know, brought fresh new energy to the position. A lot of energy, by the way, because he didn't drink alcohol. He was a teetotaler, but he did drink an impressive amount of coffee. He allegedly drank a gallon of coffee a day. So like a normal New Yorker today. (laughs) Maybe a little less. But in that position, he also befriended Jacob Reese and also another reporter named Lincoln Steffens, who worked at the Evening Post, uh, who covered this transition and, and covered, you know, his reform movement in general. All this to say that in 1895, when McGurk opened uh, his dive here at 295 Bowery, reform was already underway all around him. But police had already started raiding places like McGurk's and all those other saloons and groggeries and dance halls along the Bowery and in the Lower East Side. And in those raids and those, you know, the crackdowns would continue even after Roosevelt would leave uh, his position as police commissioner in New York and then become, of course, governor of New York State and and president of the United States. And the crackdowns would especially intensify in 1899 after the string of suicides took place at McGurk's in March of 1899. This was covered in the press from the New York world on March 9th, 1899. The headline, McGurk's brother Patrick arrested by the police. McGurk's dive at 295 Bowery, to which special attention has been attracted during the last week, because unfortunate women who frequented the place have committed or attempted to commit suicide, was visited by central office detectives last night, and Patrick McGurk, brother of John McGurk, was arrested. The police ordered the dive closed sharply at 1 a.m. They said if it was not, they would return and arrest everybody they found there. People said McGurk's poll would protect him, and it looked as though it might. For though his resort was the worst in the city, patronized by criminals and dissolute women of the lowest type, he never closed his door, day or night. So here we have uh, McGurk's brother arrested for running McGurk's, and, and that was a crime because he was charged for, quote, maintaining and keeping a disorderly house, or a, really a brothel. An establishment of ill repute. And McGurk's name would pop up various times over the next year. Uh, He would have his liquor license revoked in April. Uh, There would be claims that he was colonizing or throwing off elections in 1900 by registering people as tenants of his hotel, people who would then cast multiple ballots. It was even claimed that McGurk promised free lodging until after the election, all the drinks that a man would want, car fare, and $4 for voting on election day, provided, of course, that they would vote the Tammany ticket in that particular district. So, (laughs) yeah, a lot of frills for voting Tammany. And a lot of people allegedly living at McGurk's. Mm -hmm. But also in 1900, another New York State Assembly Committee was formed to look at Tammany Hall corruption. 
this one called the Mazet Investigating Committee. So they looked at all manner of corruption uh, within Tammany Hall and, and government. Among those who testified was the young woman, Emma Hartig, who you mentioned before. One of the first three women who had gone to McGurk's to end their lives. The one who ended up surviving and taken to Bellevue Hospital. The testimony she gave before the committee was really harrowing, really very sad. I'm just going to read a little bit here. And keep in mind, she was 16 at the time of the incident at McGurk's. And here she's talking about how she got into prostitution. I found out where McGurk's was. And I got going to McGurk's, yes, three times. There are very rough people that go to McGurk's. Very rough men indeed. Sailors, soldiers, longshoremen. And there are a good many young girls there. Most that go there have somebody to watch over them. A man. McGurk's Dancing Hall. You walk right in off the street. Anybody can go in. Police can go in. Anybody. And there these girls, like myself, sit around at tables and drink. I do mean to say that girls like me, 15, 16, 17 years of age, are sitting around the tables drinking. Some of the girls live over McGurk's. They stay there all together sometimes. They don't pay any. Some girls, they go someplace else, and sometimes they stay right up there. Stay right there and sleep in McGurk's in rooms upstairs. There are a great many men living in that district who take money away from the girls when they earn it. Those men, first they commence to make out that they like the girls, and then after they say, well now if you don't stick to me, I'll tell the police, and all that kind of stories. And they get tired and frightened, and then they commence to give their money to him, and sometimes if they don't give the money to him, they get licked. I know such a man as that. He throwed a chair at me to make me give up my money. He hurted me. There were quite a number of such men hanging around McGurk's saloon and watching the girls and making them work for them. These men do nothing to support themselves. They just live idle lives and go around and don't do any work, just take the money of the girls. I was one of the girls that got tired and took poison, and Mr. McGurk's, and then of course I was arrested, and that resulted in my changing my life. I don't think the police were much good. Sometimes the police go in these houses and get treated to drinks and whiskey, they don't care much about it if a girl goes to the street. They do not. So Emma managed to escape. She was just 16, survived her experience here at McGurk, and managed to change her life. And crackdowns would follow here and around the city, including a big sting operation that happened on March 23rd, 1901. Here's an article from the next day's Times, Greg, March 24th, headline, Raids Up and Downtown, and it just chronicles all of these raids that took over as the city was cracking down on these houses of ill repute uh, in the Tenderloin, down here on the Bowery, in, which it considered the, the red light district, um, all over. In this case, uh, they, they went in, they said, quote, McGurk's was in full blast, the place was crowded, men and women were drinking and smoking, sailors and all kinds of people were there, and dancing was going on with the rest of the amusements, uh, and the police startled everybody by rushing in. They basically arrested uh, the barman, George Kennedy, uh, the manager of the bar, and his brother Henry, and also uh, a singer, Josephine Freeman. And the next year in April, uh, there was a new police chief in town, James Churchill, who was set on cleaning up the entire neighborhood, and he told McGurk to shut the place down. McGurk asked for a little bit of time uh, to prepare himself, maybe, you know, like, get it ready to be sold. But according to a piece in the New York Sun on March 11th, 1902, the suicide hall was closed. 
Shut for good this time, it said. By 1902, all of John McGurk's establishments, and he had a few others in the city, all of them would be closed for good. He would be arrested for running a disorderly house, but he ended up skipping town. McGurk eventually escaped to California with his family, but even that far away from the Bowery, so many, many miles away from the Bowery, he couldn't shake his reputation. When his daughter applied for Catholic school, she was dismissed never to return when news came out about who her father was. Wow, so they even knew who he was in California. His reputation preceded him. On February 4th, 1913, McGurk died in Pasadena, California. So that's almost 105 years ago. He died of tuberculosis, a disease which would also take his wife and daughter. Did he die with a fortune? Well, despite having a rumored fortune of half a million dollars, it's reported that the only money he actually had near the end was a small equity on the property of 295 Bowery, the building that was once McGurk's suicide hall. Now, the Bowery, the sleazy, scandalous, filthy Bowery of which we've discussed, would go through many changes here in the 20th century. But it would still, you know, very much be a destination for the forlorn and the desperate. For many years, of course, it would garner this reputation of, as New York's Skid Row, well into the mid and late 20th century. The saloons, the grog houses, those schooner houses, those flop houses, those remained up and down the Bowery. However, with Prohibition, many of the places that sold alcohol were effectively killed off. So that changed the whole tenor of the Bowery neighborhood. So when they closed, what, what were they replaced by? So, uh, yeah, imagine all of these unoccupied buildings with, uh, that had former saloons in them that had been closed down during Prohibition. Restaurant supply stores began moving in. More industrial shops began moving up and down the Bowery. And so by the mid-20th century, uh, that would dominate this area of the Bowery above and below Houston. Further south, of course, those areas of the Bowery would become associated with the culture of Chinatown. And remember, the elevated would continue to run up the center of the Bowery uh, until 1955. In 1973, the musician Hilly Crystal opened a performance venue at 315 Bowery. That would be CBGB, the legendary rock music venue and temple to punk music in the late 70s, early 80s. 315. So that was just like, what, a block north of McGurk's? One block north of the building that once housed McGurk's. Speaking of which, whatever happened to McGurk's building? Well, 295 Bowery, it's no longer there. In the years after McGurk vacated, it became a flop house called Liberty Hotel. And it had actually a storefront called Liberty Bar and Grill. In the 1960s, it became solely residential. And in fact, a group of female artists took over the building, converting it into an artist co-op. This is where the great feminist writer Kate Millett lived. She lived and worked here for three decades. In fact, uh, she recently just passed away a few months ago. Was she aware of the building's notable history? Oh, yeah. I mean, all of the residents were well aware of this notorious past, but an important past to remember. So much so that 
in the late 1990s, this building was targeted for, quote, renewal by the Cooper Square Urban Renewal Plan. The residents of the building pushed back. They thought that this was a building that needed to be protected, that it had a very unique history and a very unique place in the landscape of New York City. But despite their efforts uh, to petition the city to protect the building, the city rejected that offer. And so in 2005, the building was demolished. And what's there today? On the site of Old McGurk's Suicide Hall is a glass and steel apartment building called Avalon Bowery Place. A far cry, certainly, from the lifestyle that once dominated this particular block 120 years ago. While there's certainly no plaque commemorating uh, McGurk's at 295, there are still a few signs of the old Bowery, especially as you get to the southern section of it, well worth a stroll today. The Bowery Mission is still in existence, and there are a lot of old, wonderful pieces of architecture up and down the street that have their own amazing stories. But they sit next to a lot of brand new developments, including the Whole Foods, which opened just over 10 years ago at the corner of Bowery and Houston. Proving that some change in the neighborhood truly is organic. Please check out the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we have some original newspaper images of both John McGurk and his wretched dance hall, and other pictures of the Bowery from that particular period, and of course that elevated railroad that cut right down the street, which blotted out the sun on the Bowery. Now the story you just heard was inspired by the aliens, TNT's new limited series starring Daniel Bruhl. Luke Evans, and Dakota Fanning. You can learn more by visiting thealienist.com. And again, that premieres on January 22nd, 2018. And the reason I'm such a fan of The Alienist from the book The Alienist is that it uses real New York City places that existed in the 1890s. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they cook up. A big thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. Uh, Greg and I, after lunch, are going to come back and record a special Patreon extra that will be released next week. So thanks again for your support. Thanks again to The Alienist, the new limited series on TNT. And thank you all for listening to our tale of McGurk's Suicide Hall. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.